What's up, Crime Turning Nation? Welcome to another episode of As the Crime Turns. I'm your host, Desmond Dervell, and I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. New episodes drop on Sundays. Also, check out the As the Crime Turns website to find additional details and extras about each week's story. While you're there, join our mailing list. That's www.askthecrimeturnspodcast.com. Without further ado, here is this week's episode, Murdered on the Catawba. Gaston County, North Carolina, home of Gastonia, the satellite city to the Queen, Charlotte, that is. The Gas House is known for the Gastonia Grizzlies, a baseball team, Belmont Abbey College, and its great access to the Catawba River. In the late spring of 2008, a murder would rock Gaston County, North Carolina. This would become one of the most unique unsolved homicide stories of all time. This is the story of Irina Yarmolenko. Ira, as she was called by many, was a sunny, bright, and fun-spirited young lady. Ira was born in the Ukraine and grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina from age eight. Sidebar, our first story, the story of Faith Hedgepeth, was also in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Moving forward, Ira's family relocated to North Carolina in the early 90s. According to her brother, Pavel, their parents found science jobs in Greensboro and later moved to Chapel Hill. Ira was a dedicated student who loved to travel and learn of other cultures. She played piano in her spare time and tennis. In 2006, Ira graduated from Chapel Hill High and attended UNC Charlotte that fall, home of the 49ers. At UNCC, she was a member of the Russian Club, a campus photographer, a writer for the school paper, and a computer assistant. According to her brother and Legacy.com, Irina had planned to transfer to UNC Chapel Hill in the fall of 2008. After May, she would never get that chance. May 5th, 2008, three days after Ira's 20th birthday and about a month after my 20th birthday, the weather was cool, around 60 degrees that morning. Gradually, we rose to about 80 as the day progressed. That morning, Ira took her last exam at UNC Charlotte. After that, she headed to the Goodwill to drop off things from her apartment she no longer wanted. It was said shortly after she stopped by her part-time job to say goodbye. And this is when things become very blurry. There are many theories of where Ira may have gone after she left her part-time job. Some people said that they saw her at a Wendy's getting some lunch. Some people said they saw her at an Exxon getting gas. Some people say they saw her at a sitco in the area, uh, the Stowe Family YMCA, uh, and a food line close to the area. The options flowed endlessly of where she could have actually gone after she left her part-time job. 
but somehow she ended up heading to the Catawba River. Now the same day, according to freemarkcarver.com, Neil Casada Jr. and his cousin Mark Carver had been fishing downriver of the Catawba. Also, according to the Charlotte Observer, that afternoon, around 12.40 p.m., Dennis Lovelace and his girlfriend set off on jet skis toward the Wilkinson Boulevard and I-85 bridges. Coming around a curve, the two spot a metallic blue object from far sight. As they got closer, they realized it was a car. Crashed into a tree stump at the bottom of the embankment, the driver's side door was wide open and not a single airbag had been deployed. As he got closer, he was able to see the body of a young woman laying in the weeds below the car. The young woman was lying on her back, dressed in a UNCP hoodie and black shirt. For people who are not familiar with North Carolina schools, there are several schools in the UNC system. Chapel Hill, Greensboro, Wilmington, Charlotte, and Pembroke. It was said the shoes of the young woman were beneath bundles of sticks. According to detectives, she was wet. There was grass and leaves all over her body and arms. Her hands were balled into a fist as if she had been grasping grass or perhaps fighting. The young lady was Ira Yarmolenko. Two and a half hour time frame is the missing piece of a puzzle surrounding a UNCC student's murder. WCNC's Tony Burbeck is joining us live with new information tonight. Tony, what can you tell us? Well, Sonny, I can tell you this, that police tell me they're not ruling anything out at this point, and they don't know if Irina Yerlomalenko's trouble started in the UNCC area, but they do say she was killed along the Catawba and not here around campus. And the fact is that she started one place and she found her way to another place and no one knows why or how. 9.30 Monday morning, UNCC student Irina Yarmolenko is spotted on campus. 10.45, she's at Jackson's Java. She was a barista here, but wasn't working then. She left in her car something she rarely drove. 1.15 p.m., a jet skier finds Yarmolenko's body next to her car along the Catawba River. Police say what happened in that two-and-a-half-hour time span is a piece of the puzzle they do not have. About a half hour of that is travel time. Another piece is whether Yarmolenko came here on her own, if she encountered someone after arriving, or if she was forced here. Friends say she knew people in Gaston County, but didn't mention coming here. So that's what a lot of people are just trying to figure out, because they don't, they don't know what could have happened to her. Yet another piece, her car down a steep embankment and this open door. Investigators say she did not fall out of it. That leaves getting out on her own or getting pushed. Police aren't saying if they found evidence of another person in the car. They hope people who either saw her or her car at that time frame can put the rest of this puzzle together. Ira was reportedly going to the Catawba River to take photographs. She was a prolific photographer and took photos for her school newspaper, as I mentioned earlier. Locals reported seeing her or her car in the area previously. Her camera was discovered in her trunk, advanced to two or three exposures, but no film was inside. 
there were no fingerprints, including Iris, or DNA found in the trunk. The cause of death was multiple ligature strangulation. Secured around Iris' neck were three random things from her car. Get this, the drawstring from her UNC Pembroke hoodie. A random bungee cord was wrapped around her neck twice, and so was a blue ribbon from a purse in her car. The ligatures were reportedly secured elaborately and tightly. However, according to the medical examiner, only one of them caused her to lose unconsciousness after about 20 seconds. The question is, how did Ira go from saying goodbye at her part-time job at Jackson's Java near UNCC to being found dead on an embankment on the Catawba River? Dennis Lovelace gave the police the following statement. Quote, I told Brenda to go call 911. Brenda went back toward Dale's boat landing to call. I rode my jet ski to a construction site and told the workers to call 911 because there was a dead body. I then went back to where the body was. I stayed on the scene until a police officer said I could leave. Quote, By that evening, the story of Ira had already gained local and national level attention. Around 6 that night, Carborough police notified the family of Irina's passing. Pavel, Ira's brother, explained to Dateline that the family felt someone had truly made an error. It couldn't be Ira that was gone. He explained he felt numb and fell to the ground. It would be eight months before the family could put a face to the person who took Ira from them. The next day, now May 6th, Ira's car was swapped for DNA on the outside. The interior was swapped the day prior. Her autopsy was performed and the three ligatures were finally removed from her neck. A white wooden cross was also placed at the embankment by local citizens to symbolize the death of Ira. A week after her death, the idea of suicide began to surface. On the 15th of May, UNC Charlotte pledged $10,000 for beneficial information that led to the investigation. One month later, the North Carolina governor at the time, Michael Easley, also pledged $5,000 for beneficial info leading to the arrest and conviction of Ira's murder. Now, let's go back a little. Remember I explained there were a few people at the river. There was the husband and wife on jet skis, and there were also two men, Neil Casada and Mark Carver. They were allegedly fishing out at the embankment that day. Neil had allegedly met Mark at the embankment to pick goods up for his animals and to fish. Around one o'clock, Neil left and Mark was joined by brothers John and James Beatty. Now, according to freemarkharver.com, Police interviewed the three gentlemen the day of Ira's death as they were canvassing the area. Mark explained to the police Neil Casada had been with them earlier that day, but had left around one o'clock. Police, of course, did due diligence on Mark by searching his license and fishing license. Imagining they didn't find anything, they continued with their search. Shortly after, Mark leaves. When he returns later to pick up equipment, he left 
he was then denied access. A few days later, police questioned both Mark and Nia. Each of them explained they had no knowledge of Ira or that someone died the day they were fishing. The investigation continued for months until October, when Neil submits a polygraph and passes. He pled he had no knowledge or involvement with Ira's death. Being that Neil passed the test, the authorities opted out of giving one to Mark, even though he offered. Some two months later. We begin tonight with two arrests in the murder of a college student from Chapel Hill. Irina Yarmolenko spent two years at UNC Charlotte. Her body was found not far from there in Mount Holly. And that's where police made an announcement this morning. Bruce Mildworth spoke with her family after the news had had a bit of time to sink in. Bruce. The family is still very much in pain and overwhelmed. Police arrested two men, but say the investigation is still ongoing. In an effort not to hurt the case, police have not released details about a possible motive or what led to the arrests. At the bottom of an embankment along the Catawba River back in May, 20-year-old Irina Yarmolenko was found dead beside her car. Police say she was suffocated. This uh, thing that has happened has always just sort of eaten at us. With no arrests in the first seven months since she was killed. I was pretty angry. Her family was in constant contact with investigators. There have been stretches when we've talked every day. The call early Friday morning is the one they were waiting for. Two Gaston County men were arrested, 40-year-old Mark Carver and 54-year-old Neil Casada, both charged with murder and conspiracy. Right now we're really overwhelmed and we don't know how to interpret all of it. With a sense of relief, her older brother was hoping for a sense of closure. Instead, with upcoming court dates and trials, he says the arrests may just prolong the grieving process. I'm not sure if any of this is really comforting. What he says is comforting are the memories of a warm and giving person. Just hours before her body was found, a surveillance video captures Yarmolenko dropping off bags of clothes and other items at Goodwill. Her brother says because of his younger sister's passion for the arts, her spirit will live on. She knew how to make people smile. When people read her poetry and read whatever else she's been writing, um, I think they'll uh, get to know a really incredible person. The suspects will make their first court appearance on Monday. They face life in prison if found guilty. On December 12th, Casada and Carver were arrested and held at the Gaston County Jail with bond set at a million dollars each. Police got them early, before 5 a.m. This step was taken based on lab reports from the July 10th DNA swabbing of Yarmolenko's car. The lab tech said, the DNA mixtures appeared to contain a predominant profile of Casada, and one appeared to contain a predominant profile of Carver. All of the samples said to match the men were mixtures, containing DNA originating from more than one contributor, which brought into question placement by transfer or possibility of incorrect analysis. Mark was later offered second-degree guilty plea of 8 to 14 years. Mark refused the offer, according to the Charlotte Observer. Quote, I told him I wasn't pleading guilty to something I didn't do. I'm not guilty and ain't going to plead guilty. Quote, In early 2009, a man alleged to have killed Irene Yamalinka. Media records show Christopher Lamont Cooper confessed that he in cahoots 
and seven others caused Ira's death. After police investigation, they were able to determine Cooper's DNA matched nothing collected from the scene. Why would he make a false confession? I thought that maybe he felt bad for both Casada and Carver. Three days later, now February 5th, the bond for both Neil and Mark is lowered from $1 million to $100,000. This came about after multiple samples from the scene excluded both men's DNA. The men posted bail but left with house arrest bracelets. It would be over a year before either of the men went to trial. Now, nearly two years after the death of Ira, October 11, 2010, charges were officially dropped against Neil Casada. Why, do you ask? Well, the day before, Neil is having breakfast with his family. All of a sudden, it becomes a struggle for him to breathe. Neil was having a heart attack. He passed away at the kitchen table. He was 55 years old. Causes of the attack were more likely heart disease and smoking. Six months later, now March 2011, Mark Carver goes to trial for the death of Irina Yarmolenko. On March 21st, after hours of deliberation, the jury found Carver guilty of first-degree murder. Mark was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He began serving his sentence at Lanesboro Correctional Institute in Poulton, North Carolina. This would only be the beginning for Mark, as several people near and far fought for his innocence. Sources say Mark had health problems, some which kept him from lifting heavy things like a body, also keeping him from moving things so far at a time to control his breathing. It was also said he was very incompetent. He only answered questions when interrogated two words at a time. I imagine like, yes, sir, or no, sir. One week after the verdict is given, defense attorneys Brent D. Ratchford and David A. Phillips filed a motion to request the evidence in jury's conviction be overruled due to lack of sufficient evidence to go to trial. The motion was denied. Over the next few years, Mark, his legal team, family and friends will go through several ups and downs in the fight for vindication. In January 2013, now five years after Ira's death, the North Carolina Supreme Court upholds Mark Carver's conviction. They denied the motion. That June, the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, or NCCAI as it's called, accepts Mark's case. It would take three years for them to file a post-conviction motion asking for all charges to be vacated. Early January 2017, Justice Jesse Caldwell grants the Innocence Team an evidentiary hearing set for April 20th, 2017. Now things get a little messy after this. About a month before the trial, the DA at the time, Locke Bell, requested for the hearing to be denied. 
Pursuits of Bell would be one hot around the summer as several requested DNA artifacts are withheld. In fact, that June, the NCCAI filed a motion requesting the DA Lock Bell be held in contempt after failing to provide the NCCAI with all law enforcement and prosecutorial agencies involved on the case. This would be the third time since 2014 Bell held the process up for Carver. Sounds pretty suspicious to me, but anyway. This constant back and forth would cause the hearing to be delayed, giving the NCCAI time to do more DNA testing and review files they were finally handed over. It's a good thing they were granted more time because one of the attorneys for NCCAI made a very unique and rare discovery. So what you're saying is there was a better way that the state lab consciously decided not to use back during the trial and the testing of the DNA? It is uh, my belief and I think we will be putting on witnesses who will testify to the fact that the state lab was aware that there were new standards for mixture interpretation and the state lab made a conscious decision not to adopt those standards and that any case that went through analysis during those years that was a mixture is at risk and the state lab should be proactive in addressing those cases. That's your expectation now, Chris, on the outcome of the hearing? I mean, my expectation is the same as it's been since we filed that motion in December of 2016. At a minimum, Mark Carver deserves a new trial. Uh, more appropriately for justice, in my mind, the charges should be dismissed and he should not be tried. May 5th, 2018. Ten years to the date of Ira's death. This time, ten years ago, police were working to apprehend suspects. In 2018, one of the suspects was working to be freed. That July, NCCAI filed a motion stating two suspects were never questioned in relation to the Yarmolenko death. The legal team requested all charges be dropped due to lack of evidence. NCCAI was able to discover there were several people at the embankment that day. Some were construction workers and some were just visitors. None of the people were ever questioned, but were present at the scene, especially during Yamilenko's death. Finally, in June 2019, June 5th to be exact, Gaston County Judge Christopher Bragg makes the decision to set aside Mark Carver's conviction and granted a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel and problems with the DNA evidence. One week later, Carver was released on a $100,000 bond, which was paid by NCCAI. This time, he's wearing a GPS monitor versus a house arrest monitor. This monitor allows him to travel throughout the state of Georgia. At this time, no arrests have been made in the death of Iri Yamalingo. It's sad to think that 11 years later, Ira's family doesn't have closure. However, it's also not fair to allow Mark to sit in prison for a crime he possibly didn't commit. If you would like more information on this case, I encourage you to check out the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence.
I'm also going to place all the footage from tonight's episode onto the website this week. I'll put hyperlinks so that you can visit the videos and read the stories surrounding that information as well. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed today's show. As I said at the beginning, please subscribe. New episodes premiere on Sundays. If you like the show today, please go on to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating. And if you can, leave a review. Let me know what you think. In the meantime, keep up with us on social. You can tweet us at As the Crime Turns and even follow us on the Insta at As the Crime Turns Podcast. Until next time, I'm Desmond Dravel, and this is As the Crime Turns. <laughs>